0: Hello friends, this is going to be pretty intimate tonight. Um, I'm excited to be here with you to talk about something that is very near. Usually I don't get, to get this much eye contact, right, with the whole audience. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about something that is very meaningful to me. Uh, I'm going to be talking about mindfulness, but it's hard for me to talk about it outside of my story, right, because part of my own life experience is kind of set me up to really appreciate what I want to talk to you about tonight. Um, So I want to introduce just a couple of things on the front side of this, and then I'll kind of lead you into where I want to go tonight with it, how I came to mindfulness. Uh, and just meditation, understanding meditation, the value of meditation, first as a mental health discipline, but then ultimately as a spiritual discipline. And uh, and then ultimately what I found when I got there and have been discovering. And that I think is ultimately where the fruit is, right? And what I would like to to share with you tonight, right, as we're, as we're um, talking about these things. So the first thing I want to share with you is... Uh, A bit of what mindfulness is not, right? What is the antithesis of mindfulness? Um, Some of you may have seen this comic. Can you read that? You have some people in heaven, right, with a couple of angels observing them, saying most of the new arrivals seem incapable of conversation. They just stare at their hands in despair. Right. We're missing our phones, right? Because very often when we feel like imagine if you remember a moment when you're standing in line and it's just you by yourself, what do we often do? It's such it's so impulsive, right? We just it's it's a way of sort of managing our anxiety, right? (laughs) To have something that we're always in. Here's another one. Unbroken eye contact. The musical, right? You can see the reviews. Invasive, <laughs> unsettling, too long, right? Uh, I'm an eye contact person. My wife and I, on our for, on our very first date, uh, she was really uncomfortable. She's like, you really like like eye contact don't you, and she just didn't like it. She was really uncomfortable with it. But but. Part of, part of mindfulness at the, uh, is about learning how to be, right? And we live in a faith where there's been traditionally a lot of emphasis on doing, right? We have the beehive, right, as a symbol of our industry and all the things that we do and accomplish and our productivity, right? But the restoration began in the sacred grove, it began in silence and in solitude. Right, and there's a, certainly a place for both, but often in our life, uh, and especially the culture and world we live in, um, we sometimes get lost in the doing, and sometimes busyness becomes even a badge of honor. Right, we kind of outbusy each other. And interestingly enough, in Chinese, the character for busy means death or loss of heart. Right? we or heart killer. Right, and the character for mindfulness means to bring the heart <clears throat> into the present. So, living more and more from a place of heart is at, is at the core of this. Um, there is a picture here that, to me, from the from the moment I started learning about mindfulness, captured the heart of what I think God is inviting us into. Do you know who this picture is? I think we're a small enough group that I can actually ask questions, right? What is this? The brother of Jared. And what's significant about that? What was what was the task? Maybe maybe a fireside's not the right place. to Be conversational, but I feel like yeah. somebody, anyone? Yeah. Um, uh, the brother of Jared was worried there would be light in the barges, and he asked God what to do, and the Lord told him to figure out so He was like, "Okay, I can't do windows, I can't do fire. Um, let me see if the will work with the and so that's what he did. Yeah. And what did he do first? What did he do before he took them to the Lord? Cuz I think this is actually important. He uh, melted them, out of the rock. He molten them until they were one. clear as a glance, right? I think that there's something metaphorical in that that's very powerful, right? The Lord was the one who touched them with his fingers so that they could produce light or hold light, but the, cl- the clarifying, the clearing out was something that, that the brother of Jared had to do, right? And and the way that I want to frame mindfulness today is and kind of teach again we're going to talk a little bit about just a little bit about what mindfulness is and then I want to kind of bring that into the context of story. Thank you. So here we have the brother of Jared takes these stones, molten them until they are clear as glass, and then in that clarity takes them to the Lord and says, "Will you touch them with your finger, right?" And then he, he, uh, the Lord does, <clears throat> and then they shine light. So here is a, uh, a picture that could capture the essence of mindfulness, right? On one side, we have someone whose mind is full, right? And on the other, we have what is mindful. Very, at, the, at the heart of mindfulness, it's really about being present. But being present in a particular way. Being present without judgments and in a, from a stance of compassion, Right, so we're intentionally present in a compassionate, non-judging way, and that's really the essence of what mindfulness mindfulness is. So we can be here today in a mindful way. We can eat in a mindful way. We can you can uh, study in a mindful way. I mean, there's just anything that we do, we can do mindfully, uh, or we can do it non-mindfully. Right, so even just taking the sacrament can be a mindful practice, as we you know, if we're fully present with this experience of connecting, right, to this symbolism of the body and the blood, right, of our Savior. Or we could just be thinking about whatever's going on during the week, right? So that, that experience of presence is going to be at the heart of this. Um, here, there's, there's a... Um, in the King James Version, Philippians 2, 5-8, Paul is describing the work of Christ, and in this, he makes a statement, right? That Paul, that, in, that Jesus, in order to do the will of the Father, made himself of no reputation, humbled himself, and then became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's a contemporary translation of this, though, that I really like, uh, and that I think captures uh, something very powerfully uh, of what, a, what Jesus mo- you know, did, but ultimately what he modeled for us. In this contemporary translation, uh, Jesus, in order to do of the will of the Father, emptied himself. Emptied himself. So then the question for me is, emptied himself of what? Right? There could be lots of things. But some of the things that I imagine was that he emptied himself of his own agendas, his own Will other than to align with the will of the Father, right? And I think our own discipleship invites us to clear out, to empty ourselves sometimes of our stories, sometimes of our expectations, sometimes we have to unlearn things that we have learned that have. Hurt us, right? I, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, I work as a therapist. My full-time job is as a therapist, and then I've been teaching at BYU for about ten years. And um, very often, right? And this is just one example. Right? We all have lots of beliefs that sometimes we have to unlearn in order to make room for truth. And it's very common for people to conceive of God, the most natural conception of God is a reflection of how we relate to our own parents, right? So people who have parents who are uh, have a lot of high expectations and maybe kind of rigid or perhaps even shaming, it's very hard for them to conceptualize a God who is full of grace and love. and can, Do you get what I'm saying? So our mortal experience is often a reference point for God, and in order to, for God to reveal himself as he is, sometimes we have to empty ourselves of the preconceived notions that we have, right? Empty ourselves of the stories and the expectations. And this is where I want to go back to where, where my story and some experiences that I had that really ultimately set the stage for this. So when I was, uh, I did my undergraduate work at BYU, and in the, during my senior year at BYU I had a bit of an existential crisis, and then at some point as I was working through that, had some very powerful spiritual experiences where I just felt God sort of, I felt enveloped in love, but also there was some instruction in that. And it was a very healing experience, but in that, right, and and you can imagine in the church, right, especially young adults, you know, we talk a lot about marriage, right? Marriage and dating and courtship. As I was working through this existential crisis, I had a very strong spiritual impression, and the words were very clear, and it was that I was to prepare myself to never be married. And here I am a senior at BYU where we talk a lot about marriage, right? And, but, but that impression was very clear. And that I was to focus on Christ and just living one day at a time. And that felt a little confusing, but it also... There was a piece in it that I knew was right, and so I continued forward. And I believed at that point that I was not going to get married. Now, in hindsight, I'm married with five kids, but in, in I, I have we learn, you know, We, we I, I believe that there's two disciplines, right? One is to the discipline of, of receiving revelation and the other is the discipline of interpreting it. But those, But those words were clear that I was to prepare myself to never be married and then later I learned why that was. But it was an act of faith to figure out how am I going to do, how am I going to live my life, a full life, Not being married because so much of my, uh, you know, growing up in the church, I think we very often tie happiness to family life, right? To marriage and children. And there is a lot of joy there. I can say that from experience. I didn't have any conception of what, how you be happy if you're not married, right? Because we almost have this sort of idea that you're not supposed to be happy. I mean, you can be happy until you're like 22, 23, right? And then we have this purgatory-like state where you're kind of stuck in this in-between netherworld, right? You're not supposed to be happy until you get married and then you can be happy and start progressing again. And nobody's ever said that, but that's how I felt. But I, I certainly didn't have any conception of what does it actually mean to live a full, happy, joyful Life, not married. And so a lot of my, my prayer at that point was, you're going to have to teach me. And so that's where the next seven years was that. And so it was from that to the time I received that impression to the time that I later met my wife was seven years. And, and for all of that, I didn't believe that I was going to get married. When I met my wife, it was kind of a, an about-face. <clears throat> but I'll get to that. So I was moving forward on faith, and even though I hadn't been introduced to mindfulness, I didn't have any of the language that we were talking about, being able to empty myself of the story that I had prepared for my life, of the vision that I had for my life, of what my life was going to look like, of what my life should look like, of what the life of faith should look like, was in itself just a, a practice of just reminding myself that I could trust. And moving forward in faith and focusing on nurturing my relationship with, uh, with the Savior. So graduated from BYU, moved to Washington DC. I was living there for two years and my undergraduate was Chinese Studies and Business so nothing that had anything to do with therapy. I hadn't even conceived of the idea of being a therapist. So but I was there and I had uh, these uh, impressions that I was to go back to school and family therapy. So I moved back to Utah, took some prereqs to go back, you know, because I didn't have anything that was related. So I had to take some prereqs for about a year, and then had this very clear impression as I was taking a seminar class, and I was just, a, you know, going through this list of accredited universities. And as I came to this university that I had never heard of, in a city that I had never heard of, I had a very strong impression that this is where you're going. And again, I didn't know that's always a little hard. It's like having this, you know, having this feeling that you're supposed to date somebody or marry somebody, and you can't tell anybody, right? Because it just sounds crazy. But I decided to go to the school, moved to Texas, and was praying for confirmation. And um, <clears throat> and I actually have to back up because my major was Chinese studies. I spent a summer in China. I spent two summers in China. But during one of those summers. I was, uh, we did a lot of touring, I was there as a study study abroad, but we were touring and we had stopped at a monastery, a Buddhist monastery. And there was this Buddhist monk that met us at the gate and kind of took us back. And this individual had a presence that I had never experienced or seen in anybody that I had ever known. And he didn't speak English, I didn't speak Chinese. So he kind of led us through the tour, which was interesting. But that presence always stayed with me. Fast forward, I'm at this university where I'm going to be starting. It's a Christian university called Abilene Christian, where I'm going to be starting my master's program. And this was actually just the interview process. But as I met the faculty there, there was one woman, one of the professors, had this same kind of presence that I reckon, that was resonant with what I had experienced and seen in this Buddhist monk, and the moment I shook her hand, the spirit just sort of moved through me and confirmed that this is where I was supposed to be. And I learned that she uh, was very. Um, uh, she was part of the Churches of Christ, but she was very involved in a contemplative Christian community that's kind of a Christian uh, variation of kind of a, a mindfulness meditation. Uh, communities like a Buddhist Sangha, they'll get together and they'll meditate, and this was a, a Christian expression of that. And over the course of those last two years, I, I observed her. Quite a, the next two years, I observed her quite a bit. But as I went to this school, I was also the only Latter-day Saint. I was 29 years old. The, I was the only single person over 24. And uh, I was the only Latter-day Saint, right? And at, you know, it was a Christian school, but they don't have some of the same prescriptions that we do, so a lot of the students liked to go drink and do karaoke on the weekends, and that's fun to watch once, maybe twice. And so I ended up spending a lot of my weekends alone. Loved the faculty, loved the students, loved the school, but I also felt very isolated. And the loneliness really just started to set in in a very kind of painful way. And I started to pray, and this was sort of that first fall semester, and I prayed to know why I was here. I wanted to know, because it was very clear that I was here, but it, that I was supposed to be here, but it was not clear why. And so I just continued to ask that question. And over time, I started to hear the words, and then reinforced, to learn meaningful solitude. To learn meaningful solitude. The idea, with it, the feeling that I I needed to learn how to be alone and not feel lonely. Could I be alone and feel full in God? Now I've always been a believer in the church. Um, I think faith is one of the spiritual gifts I've always had—the gift to know. I've just always known. Even through my existential crisis, I I just I knew that the church was true. I just couldn't. There were. Questions about my placement, and as I was having this, as I was kind of sitting in this, so I knew that the church was true, and my test, and I believed in God, and I believed in God's love, and I'd had some spiritual experiences, but I think my relationship with God still was primarily institutionally mediated. I don't know that I knew how to have a relationship with God outside of just church activity. Does that make sense? And this is what I felt God was calling me into. Like, I want you to learn how to be with me and feel full. Uh, and, and that was a new... Again, the idea was new. Not conceptually, but experientially it was new. And so I spent a lot of time by myself just practicing meditation, practicing being quiet, you know, practicing being quiet. And then I moved to Lubet to start my doctorate, and they had a Buddhist sangha there. So I attend this Buddhist sangha and meditate, do these half-day meditations on Saturdays, and then I would um, go to church on Sunday, and you know, and. But as I would sit in these meditations, the most natural place for me to be is I'm clearing my mind, right? Emptying myself of agendas, of stories, of learning how to observe thoughts without identifying them, learning how to observe emotions without identifying with them, right? Being with the body without identifying with it, right? And in these moments of just practicing, emptying and being, the most natural place for me to want to be was with God. And I would find myself just wandering into prayer quite regularly. And that relationship that I started to, to forge in this being kind of way, you know, because again, a lot of my prayers over my life were kind of transactional prayers, right? If you remember President, uh, not President, Elder Christofferson talked about the divine vending machine, right? in a conference or two ago. But he talked about how very often our relationship with God is kind of this transactional relationship. We want certain blessings, so we put in the tokens, we pay the price, and we expect God to pony up and bless us in the ways that we've been told right? Uh, that he was supposed to bless us. And Elder Christofferson was inviting us into a different kind of relationship with God, a less transactional relationship. And a lot of my life, my prayers were transactional. I said my prayers, and I thanked God for the things I was thankful for, and I asked for the things. Just sitting with God was a new experience for me. Uh, St. Teresa, Mother Teresa, she... um, was asked once, in an interview, the interviewer was asking her for about prayer. Because she talked about how she would pray for hours and sit in prayer for hours. And he said, what do you do? Like, what do you say for hours when you pray? And she said, I don't speak, I mostly listen. And he said, what does God say for hours? And she said, he doesn't speak, he mostly listens. And to the Western mind, not much is going on there, right? But there's, there's a lot happening there, right? And if you're familiar with the idea of it, if you, if you um, bang a tuning fork and it's humming, does anybody know what happens if you bring another tuning fork into proximity? This tuning fork, even without plucking it, as it comes into proximity, it will pick up on the vibration of this other tuning fork and it will start to vibrate. Right? Just by virtue of feet picking up on that energy, the vibration. And I've come to believe that the most powerful prayers that we can offer isn't really necessarily even a prayer of the things that we say, though I mean, certainly there's an appropriate place for that. I think the most powerful prayers that we can offer are the prayers where we just open ourselves up to be in God's presence. I want to share, I'm going to skip, this is going a little bit direct, a little bit of a different direction than what I conceptualize, so I'm going to skip around here a little bit. But I do, in, um, there was a talk that Elder Christofferson gave. And he talked about in this talk, he mentioned an interview that he had listened to with uh, the Reverend Desmond Tutu, who was an Archbishop of South Africa. Very well respected uh, Archbishop. He passed away uh, last year or two. But, in that, but he commented in this talk on that interview, and he said this Well, he noted that the interview, the interviewer asked Bishop Tutu. Have you found that your relationship with God has changed as you've grown older?" Bishop Tutu paused and then said, Yes, I'm learning to shut up more in the presence of God, which I think is a beautiful sentiment. And then this is Elder Christofferson's voice again. He recalled that when he prayed in his early years, he did so with a list of requests and solicitudes. Right? These kind of transactional prayers that we often offer. He would approach heaven with what he called a kind of shopping list. But now, he said, quote, I think I am trying to grow in just being there. Like when you sit in front of a fire in winter, you are just trying to, uh, uh, like like when you were sitting in front of a fire in the winter, you are just there in front of the fire. And you don't have to be smart or anything. The fire just warms you. Elder Christofferson then said, I think this is a lovely metaphor. Just sit with the Lord and let him warm you like a fire in winter. You don't have to be perfect or the greatest person who ever graced the earth or the best of anything to be with him. I hope you will take time to sit for a few quiet moments and let the Savior spirit warm you and reassure you of the worthiness of your service of your offering of your life. Sit quietly and come away spiritually strengthened and better prepared for all that is going to come later. Let that moment be one of rest, and refreshing, and reassurance, and renewal." Right? So here I am, I'm learning, as I'm sitting in these guided meditations with these Buddhist monks to just be, and to be with God and to feel that fullness. And over time, it didn't happen... It was still kind of a a capacity that I had to to develop and practice over time. It's like a muscle, right? Uh, You really have to work it and practice it or it'll atrophy. And so I was just practicing this this being, but, but in these moments of wandering, these are some of the most meaningful and filling prayers that I have ever offered. But there was another thing that also became important. As I'm opening up, like, God, I don't know what you want my life to look like. But I want to be wherever you want me to be. Right. This kind of sense of emptying myself of my own biases, my own agendas. I just want to be an instrument. I want to do what God called me to do. And, um, and at, this time, at this point, I believed that that would not include marriage one of the intersecting themes here that became very important to me was in, um, in a lot of Eastern spiritual thought, they have there's a conception of love that I think is actually closer to gospel conceptions of love than our Western Victorian romantic conceptions of, of love. I think a lot of us have a hard time conceiving of love outside of this sort of infatuatory state that we fall into or fall out of. right? At least... know, um, when we celebrate love or we think we're, you know, we're in love with love, it's typically in this romantic context. In Eastern, one of the things as I started kind of learning about mindfulness and listening to some of these mindfulness teachers, this theme of love came up quite a bit. And one of the themes that started to emerge and become very clear was this idea that in order for love to be love, it has to be free that the degree to which I need someone is the degree to which my capacity to love them is compromised. That's a little hard for us to sit with, right? Because the idea that I need you, right? You make me so happy, or you meet my needs. I can't live without you. We love that stuff, right? And in these Eastern conceptions, there's one teacher who said that to be the capacity to be alone is the capacity to love. He said it may be paradoxical to you, but it is not. That only those people who are capable of being alone are capable of going into the deepest core of another person without trying to possess them. Right? Who can allow others, to be fully them, because we don't need them to be anything other than who they are for us. Does that make sense? As a, as a marital therapist, I see this all the time, where couples get into this power struggle of you're not meeting my needs, and what do I need from you, and why aren't you what I need, or you started out as what I need, but you're, not, you're no longer what I need. Does that make sense? Or meeting my needs is usually the way that it comes up. And in that power struggle of you not meeting my needs, love gets lost in that. Because love is gift. And so, as I'm learning this, a lot of my prayer started to also morph into, I want to learn how to be full so that I can gift love. There's another Eastern teacher who said that true love is manifest only when two people each connected to their deepest self, unite. They give love, not because they need love, and not because the other needs love, but because love overflows their cup and they must share. When we are sourced in God, Right, and as Moroni would say, right, if we are going to understand true, eternal love, that comes only to true disciples of Christ who pray with all the energy of their heart. Right? It's this eternal conception of true love isn't something that we can get even in our own purely human efforts. It is a spiritual gift that comes. And I believe that as we sit in God, as we are fueled in God... We, can, we will grow into a kind of love that can truly sustain eternity. A lot of our Western conceptions of love can barely sustain mortality, right? If you think about the divorce rates and you know romanticism, the interesting thing historically is, is every culture that's embraced romanticism as its primary form of love, you also see divorce rates skyrocket. Right? Because, as much as we love the feeling of romanticism, an emotion cannot sustain an eternal marriage. There's something deeper that can sustain eternity. And I believe that's only an, eternity, an eternal quality of love. So as I'm having a lot of these insights, um, I, that my prayer was more about not looking for love outside or not looking for love from others but wanting to God to teach me how to love and then feeling like I could give that. This is where it starts to get um, uh, beautiful to me but conflicted to my now wife. So as I'm in Lubbock I started, you know, as I'm having these feelings, I started to get to this place where I just felt like I get it. I feel like I could live a full, joyful life, even if I never married. And, um, and I, I started to kind of get excited about that prospect. There was a lot of things that I could do and ways in which I could serve. I'll tell you, I was way more productive professionally before I got married. I have five little kids, and and that's demanding, right? And there's times where I still wish I could be as productive as I was then, but I wouldn't wouldn't trade my kids. But there was this sense of, so anyway, as I started to get to this place where I'm having these realizations, in that moment I connected with, or reconnected with, my now wife. And even as I reconnected with her, I had a very strong, this is what I was alluding to, I had a very strong spiritual impression that this was who I was going to marry. And, again, I didn't know what to do with that, but we just sort of trusted the process. And so we started dating, and we had a, a pretty quick dating blitz. But at one point, this was actually over Christmas break, I, was, I had this impression. She had actually reached out to me because she knew that I was friends with her brother. I didn't know her very well. But she had reached out to... She wanted to go back to school. She had got an MBA and was working... Uh, in the business world, but wanted to go back to school in family therapy. She knows that I'm a therapist. Her brother's friend is a therapist. So she's like, can I ask you some questions? And I said, yeah. I'm actually gonna be in Utah for Christmas break, so I'd love to take you out. So anyway, so I went up to, um, as I'm getting ready to go up to Utah and having this thought that something might, there might be something here, I prayed to God and said, I am willing to do my part and you have three weeks to do yours. And so we went on this kind of dating blitz for the, for the three weeks that I was in Utah. And then she came down to Lubbock, where I was doing my doctoral work, Lubbock, Texas. And, uh, you know, I was, again, I'm not ever getting married. This is the world I'm living in. So I had my own apartment, and I'm not doing the man cave or the bachelor pad thing. I'm just, I'm living my life, and I'm living a full life. And, you know, I can decorate. And I got food in the fridge, and there's you know, starting a little bit of storage in the pantry and these sorts of things. So anyway, so my wife is, well, then now wife, later, then this Danielle, who I'm dating, she starts going through my apartment and she's like looking in my, I mean, she sees that it's nicely decorated and she's looking in my fridge and I've got food and she looks in my pantry and I've got more food and like she, and you could, I could see her kind of deflating. And She didn't talk about it then. We weren't really in a place to make any real decisions then, but at the end of that trip, we decided that she was going to move down and and we were going to start dating, with the intent to date to ultimately, likely get married. But when she... uh, So after she had moved down, we were reflecting back on that, and by this point, we had decided that we were going to get married. But with a sense of real discouragement, she says to me... I just feel like you don't need me. And I said, I don't need you. Which was not very romantic and not what she wanted to hear. But, I, but for me, this was this moment of like, and this is beautiful, was, like I have this love to give and I want to give it to you. I wanted to be with her and I wanted to gift that love to her. But I didn't feel like I needed her. And that left her feeling really insecure. Later, she told me, "We well, she, she just kind of felt flustered and then wanted to move past that conversation. Later, she came back to it and she said, and, and to understand my wife, or to understand what's happening here, you also have to have a little bit of backstory here in that we all often have a little bit of, um, we all have a little bit of a hustle. Hustle for love, hustle for worthiness, right? And one of her ways, one of her protective mechanisms in relationships was that she would try to make the guys who she was dating need her so they wouldn't leave her, right? If they could need her, that reinforced this sense of security about the relationship. You kind of following me? But that's a double-edged sword because also at the same time, this very thing that she's doing to reinforce security also reinforced a kind of insecurity because the other shadow side of that is if you didn't need me, would you want me? Would you choose to be with me? And so, and that was just sort of this kind of cycle that she would play out in these relationships that she was in. And with that as backdrop, she said to me, she's like, I really hated that you said that. And she said, as I sat with that and just sat with how that, as I sat with how that made me feel and how insecure that made me feel, she said, I had this moment of awareness that I believed that your love was a choice and I trusted that you would not unchoose it. And when I had that awareness, I felt more secure than I've ever felt in any relationship that I've been in. As I truly believe, Christ... Brad Wilcox has said it this way. He said, God and Jesus do not love us because of what we do. They love us because it's who they are it is fundamentally contrary to their nature to not love us. Their love for us is not transactional. Their love for us is a free gift. It is pure grace. And we are growing into becoming the kind of beings that our Heavenly Parents are and that our Savior is. And as we do so, Our, we will become beings whose defining essence is love. And that is a love that we gift to all that we come into contact with. The interesting thing about the King James Version is that there's a scripture, you've all heard it, right? We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. The interesting thing about that, though, is that in the Greek, there's no object. So contemporary translations translate that, we love because He first loved us. It's not just about the reciprocation of love because He loved us first. You love me, I'll love you back. His love for us made it possible for us to become love as He is love. And that is a love that will be manifest in any relationship that we're in. There's a German psychologist who wrote a classic book called The Art of Loving, and he said one of our problems with love is thinking of love, he said one of the problems we have is love is that we tend to think love, loving is easy, it's finding the right people to love that's hard. But he said the opposite is true. When we understand what love really is, we understand that developing a capacity for love is really hard. But when we do, finding people to love is very easy. We are becoming It's not just about getting, I fell in love. We get sort of kind of swept up, right, in sort of this neurochemical cocktail, right, of emotions and hormones and oxytocin and norepinephrine and dopamine and all the things, right, when we get into that infatuatory state of relationships. That's not love. It's exciting, right? We love the feeling, so we call it love. The true love has to grow out of that. As you hurt my feelings and now I have to develop the capacity for forgiveness and long-suffering and all the things that are going to sustain a long, long-term relationships. What am I doing on time? What time am I supposed to end by? So, 10 minutes? Okay. So, all of this. I want to share... Um, my wife is often reflected back on that conversation, right? And that is still my goal, right? I want to be in a place always where my love can be a gift and it's not contingent upon what you do for me, right? Or what my wife does for me or what she doesn't do for me or what my kids do for me, right? Um, it needs to be, and I actually think the closest that we get to just pure expression of charity is in more of a parenting relationship because it is all gift, right? You just expect very little from your kids. So often a kid can't give much to you. And you just have this love that just flows from places you didn't even know existed, right? For these little baby humans, right? That we get stewardship over. And, um, and we also learn, uh, develop capacity for love in our, in our um, marriages as well. But also, I don't, but I also believe that as we become beings of love, there is no hierarchy of love in heaven. I believe it's the same kind of love. Charity is the pure love of Christ. That's what becomes defining, and that love is something that we experience in the whole of the body of Christ, not just in our immediate familial relationships. Um. So, to move on a little bit, we often talk, right? We often ask this question, right? Are we seeing the song, I'm trying to be like Jesus, right? Uh, so or we ask, right, what would Jesus do? And very often, I think, at least in my experience, my, the first thoughts that we often go to are what he did, right? Or he, you know, he served and he blessed and he healed and he ministered, right? And he did do those things. But he also did some other things. After Jesus was baptized and before his public ministry, he spent 40 40 days praying and meditating in the wilderness. Early in his ministry, Jesus spent the whole night alone in prayer. And then the next day, he came out of that experience, and that was when he uh, called his disciples. I'm going to come back to this one because... um, A writer that I really like commented on this in a way that I think is really beautiful. Jesus sent the twelve disciples then out to do ministry. When they returned, he encouraged them to separate themselves from the people who were following them and to go rest. After Jesus learned that his cousin John the Baptist had been beheaded, he went away by himself into solitude to grieve. Jesus did a lot of retreating, a lot of quiet communion, a lot of meditating. Many times in Jesus' ministry, he spent time alone in prayer. Hours before Jesus was arrested, he went to the Mount Mount of Olives and went a short distance away from his disciples there to be alone with God. His source was God. His fuel was God. Now, Henry Nouwen, who is a very well-respected Catholic writer, he's passed away now, but before he passed away, he wrote a piece called Moving from Solitude to Community to Ministry. And he commented on and this this whole article that he wrote, or this piece that he wrote, Was a commentary on that episode where Jesus went up and spent the night in prayer, then came down, called his disciples, and then together they went into ministry. And he said, The order here is important. The night was for solitude, the morning for community, the afternoon for ministry. And One of his comments has to do with this idea of solitude before community. And I love this idea, and I have a very strong conviction of this idea. He said, why is it so important that solitude come before community? If we do not know that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God, we're going to expect someone in the community to make us feel that way. But they cannot. A human can never communicate to our soul the depths of the belovedness that we are to God. And that that truth, knowing that truth and being sourced in that truth, I think is at the heart of this idea of, is key to love becoming our gift. So, we will expect someone else to give us that perfect unconditional love. But community is not loneliness grabbing onto loneliness. I'm so lonely, and you're so lonely. It's solitude grabbing onto solitude. I am the beloved, and you are the beloved. And together, we can build a home. Right? This home where we love, not because you need love, and not because I need love, but because love overflows our cup, and we must share. And then, rather than fall in love, this writer says, we rise in love. So together, we can build a home. Sometimes you're going to be close, and that's wonderful. And sometimes you don't feel that much love, and that's hard. But we can be faithful. We can build a home together and create a space for God and for the children of God. I believe that our capacity to know the truth and root in the truth that we are the beloved, which we can only know in solitude. I had a, I had a theological belief in God's love. On my mission, I believed it conceptually. I don't know that I could say that I ever felt it. At least not in any way that I would recognize it. But I believed it. It wasn't until later, some very powerful spiritual experiences where I felt enveloped in that love, that I knew it, and that I trusted it, or could trust it in a new way. But that only happened in that relationship. A theology couldn't give me that in the way that my soul needed to know it. I needed God to give me that. But I was in my late 20s before I had that experience. So, it, I mean, it comes when God gives it to us. But the more we open ourselves up to that, the more likely we are going to be to receive that. Right? So this is the, this is the idea. Um, I'm going to skip here. I'm going I'm to say one last thing. Actually, two last things. This is actually from President McKay, Who was a very big proponent of meditation? He said this He said, We pay too little attention to the value of meditation, a principle of devotion. In our worship, there are two elements one is the spiritual communion that arises from our own meditation, the other, instruction from others, particularly from those who have authority to guide and instruct us. Of the two, the more profitable, introspectively, is the meditation. We spend a lot of time in in instruction, and there's certainly a place for that. How much time do we spend in communion, in solitude, in relationship, rather than lecture, or discussion, or talk, or fireside, right? Meditation is the language of the soul. Meditation is a form of prayer. Meditation is one of the most secret, most sacred doors through which we pass into the presence of the Lord. So, I present to you, right? This is sort of this idea of coming to God in solitude, emptying and having years where I had to practice emptying myself. And just trusting whatever God wanted me to do next, relying on today's manna today, tomorrow's manna, tomorrow. That served as a really critical foundation for me in the years since then, since I've been married and having kids. And But I still, right, even though I, I love my family, and I need, at the more that I am fueled and sourced in God, the more I feel like I have to give them. The less I'm sourced there, the less I feel like I have to give them. And I I think that's at the the heart of this. Then I want to leave with one thought. This is actually some of you might be familiar with the term Namaste, right? Um, Does anybody know what it means? The light in me sees the light in you, or the divine in me, or the divine spark in me. It gets translated all these ways. The divine spark in me sees the divine spark in you. Does anybody know where the handshake comes from? In the West, the handshake came out of a greeting to show you that I don't have a gun or a weapon. So in the West, our form of greeting originates with, I'm not going to hurt you, which is kind of a low bar when you think about it. The East, the greeting is the divine in me sees the divine in you. Right? And together, right, we build a home. The sentiment of that I think is really, really beautiful. And I think that is what God is calling us into all the time. Uh, Virginia Hinckley Pierce. Uh, President Hinckley's daughter, she said this. She said, Namaste. It means, roughly translated, I honor the deity within you. And that is precisely what we do when we open our hearts to one another. We honor the fact that he or she, like us, is a child of the same loving father, worthy of respect and careful attention. Mindfulness is cultivating, bringing the heart into the presence, Present. And as I bring my heart into the present, I can gift that to you. I can be with you from a more open space. And uh, one last quote that I'll close with is a Christian writer. Uh, This is one of my favorite quotes of all time. Um, He said this. He said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It's what liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. And my testimony is this that my, the capacity for mindfulness, of being fully present with heart, with our, in our hearts, enables us to hold ourselves more as we open up into relationships with others. We allow, we're able, we allow others to see into me or to experience deeper intimacy with each other. And it also... Enables us to be more fully present, to fully see the people around us. And the more we open up to each other and allow ourselves to both be seen, be known, be loved, and see, know, and love, all capacities that mindfulness helps us to practice and to cultivate we will grow more fully into the divine nature and into the quality and capacity of love that God wants for us. Thank you for letting me be here with you today. I want to bear my testimony that mindfulness is a principle of the gospel. Jesus had a lot to say about the state of our hearts. And the cultivation of heart that is inherent in mindfulness is at the heart of relationship with ourself, relationship with each other, and ultimately relationship with God. And I want to leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.